Uh, we're in John chapter 12 this morning. And I will say, uh, as a segue from that, um, if you don't usually take notes today, uh, we're going we're gonna to do something a little different. And I'm going to ask you to write some things down because um, I want to kind of draw your attention to that. So if you have something to write with and a piece of paper, um, in a minute we're going to use that um, to further our understanding of this passage. We're in John chapter 12. Uh, this is part two of my sermon from last week, looking at the glory of the cross. John chapter 12, we read, or we will read, verses 20 through 36. Let me read this for us this morning. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I am being lifted up from the earth and will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So as we looked at it last week, we're focusing on the glory of the cross. A lot of times we spend a lot of emphasis on the resurrection as being the great glorious event where Christ came up out of the grave. And, and what a glorious event it was, right? It's a great celebration. But, but oftentimes we struggle with finding the celebration in the cross, to find the celebration in this, this element of death, this, this torturous device. But it's very much true and important for us as believers to see the cross as also a glorifying event for the church, that it was the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the very death that died on that day that brought glory to the Father. And, and that's clearly through repetitive words in these chapters what Jesus is trying to teach us. We read in, uh, in, in John chapter 12 
that Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Later on in, in verses 27 or verses 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. And in return, the Father responds to him, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The idea being that, that, uh, that the Son of Man was coming and he was giving his life as a reflection or the majesty of the glory of God at work. And we talked about that last week in seeing this beautiful fulfillment of God's plan where, where God had set in motion this plan of redemption and that Jesus had carried it out in saying, my hour has now come. And in doing so, he was going to the cross to, to bring glory to the Father by being an obedient son. What a great Father's Day message, right? The obedient son being faithful to the words of his father, carrying out the plan of his father. And so we looked last week at the fact that in that death upon the cross, as that grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. We being the fruit of that glorifying death. And so today we're going to look at a couple more aspects of this glory. The first being the glory of the agitation. Jesus says something very familiar to us, but very unexpected at this point in his ministry. Here we begin to see Jesus identifying in the struggle of the cross, looking forward to the cross, and saying, now is my soul troubled. Not now will my soul be troubled. Now is my soul troubled. He's a, the, the word troubled there means agitated. This is a, a familiar passage to us because we hear very similarly, and we'll read this in a minute, the same type of prayer and wrestling of Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Matter of fact, you could even say that these are bookends to the time when Christ comes and gives his life. This, this introductory agitation, this understanding that the hour has now come, my soul is troubled, and then there the night before his trial and his crucifixion, the same type of agitation and, and, and troubling of the soul. Well, what does this mean? I mean, what is Jesus really saying here? Is he asking the Father to save him from the cross? Here's where your pen and your paper is going to play a part in, in your Bible study this morning. What I need you to do, if you would humor me this morning, is I want you to write verse 27 down on a piece of paper. But I want you to write it leaving out any punctuation, strictly just write the words. Because if you'll be reminded this morning that as, as the, the, the infallibility of the word of God has been given to us, it has been given to us in its infallible state in the original manuscripts, not in our English translations. We, God, by God's grace and mercy, have been, have been given amazing translations of the, of, the, of the Bible into English. But we have to acknowledge 
that the infallibility of God's word comes in the original manuscripts of God's word. In the way that they were delivered unto the saints, the Greek in the New Testament, the Hebrew in the Old Testament. We cannot attest that the, the translators themselves that sat around a table in some city in America and began to wrestle with the translations, we cannot say that they are infallible. And let me give you a reason why this is so important for us this morning. After you write verse 27 down, I want you to write it again right underneath it. A copy of verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So as the translators, if we are serving as translators this morning, just looking at the English language, taking our minds away from the punctuation that we see in our Bibles, the punctuation actually plays a big role in translating verse 27 and what the meaning of this verse is. So in your first sentence in verse 27, what I want you to do is I want you to put a period after the word troubled. A period after the word troubled. A question mark after the word say, what shall I say? And an exclamation after the word hour in the Father save me from this hour, the first hour. So to repeat myself, a period after troubled, a question mark after say, and an exclamation after the first word hour. So that you get it read in this way. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So that's me adding the punctuation in my reading of the text. Now in the second sentence, do it this way. Put a period after troubled. Put a colon after the word father. Put a question mark after the first hour. A period after troubled, a colon after father, and a question mark after the first word hour. So now that would read this way. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now if you pick up on the differences which is the two main uh, kind of interpretations, you get two different things. One, the first one, is a, it is a, a clear question, agitated, troubled state, whereby Jesus is saying in a directive statement, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. It, it's clearly a prayer. Father, save me from this hour, but yet a, de a declarative, but for this purpose I have come. But just with the changing of the punctuation, the second way is 
what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? Like, it's a rhetorical question. Like, would I ever doubt and, and ask to be saved from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come. See the difference? It's, it's, it's different. There's, there's enough difference and distinctiveness there that interpreters have come to really try to figure out what is Jesus saying. Is he really asking to be saved? Or is he saying with a, a directive, firm confidence, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? I'm not going to say that. Well, my interpretation in my humble, somewhat ignorant, oftentimes foolish opinion, is that the first one is the better interpretation, that Jesus is actually crying out in his humanity to be saved. I don't, I don't make that based upon what sounds good to me. But I think that in interpreting scripture, we have to do a couple things. Number one, we have to go to the original language if we need to. If we can, we definitely need to. Secondly, we need to read the surrounding context. What's going on here? Well, in the context, be reminded, Jesus has come into the city. He saw the, the city as a whole from a distance. He was crying. He was he was saddened by not only the rejection of the Messiah and the sin that was represented in that rejection, but he was saddened at the judgment that would come upon this city. His people had rejected him. And in that rejection and the weight of sin, I think this plays a role in the troubled, agitated state of the God-man. And so the surrounding context is important. But I think in interpreting the scriptures, not only do we look at the context, but we use what's called the, analog the analogy of faith. And the analogy of faith is, is that we look to the whole of scripture and we allow scripture to interpret scripture. We don't allow our feelings and our emotions to interpret Scripture because let's be honest, if it's Father's Day and that means something good to you, then you have, uh, you're in good spirits. But if it, Father's Day is difficult for you, you're in bad spirits. And if you go to the Word and you interpret it based upon your emotions, guess what's going to happen? You're going to interpret the idea of a father as being very difficult for you. And you're going to place upon God a characteristic that doesn't belong to his holy and perfect nature. So we allow scripture to interpret scripture and what do we see from other passages that might help us but the very issue of, or the very experience of the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you have your, your place held in John, turn to Matthew 26 and let's look at what does Jesus pray there in the garden and how similar is it to my interpretation that I've presented to you this morning. Matthew 26, verse 39. Reads, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I, not as I will, but as you will. Now, if we use 
the Garden of Gethsemane as a very much a parallel or repetitive experience in Jesus, then we are seeing a true conflict in the soul of Christ where he is wrestling with in his humanity the great weight of sin and yet in the same way he is wrestling with the purposed uh, desire that he has to carry out the redemption of sinners. So we could say that it's Jesus is not asking a rhetorical question of the Father, but genuinely asking him to be saved, and yet surrendering his will, not in a moment of cowardice, but as a clear reflection of his humanity, the same humanity which wept over Jerusalem, the same humanity which wept at Lazarus' tomb, the same humanity that needed to rest and needed to eat because the Lord Jesus Christ is fully human. And yet the weight of sin is not the weight of his sin, it's the weight of our sin. It's the weight of the wrath of God upon the sins of his people that he will bear on the cross. We don't believe, we shouldn't believe that Jesus is afraid of the cat of nine tails. He's not afraid of the the difficulty in his legs and his back of carrying a cross up a mountain. That the trouble and the agitation in his soul is that for the first time he's going to be in, in, a, in, a, in a conflicted state with the Father because of the weight of the wrath of God that he will face for our sin. Charles Spurgeon says, do not imagine that our Savior dreaded death in itself. For he was far superior in sacred courage and strength of mind to any of his servants. And yet many of them have welcomed death and others of them, such as the martyrs, have endured it in its most terrible forms without fear. Even expressing a holy delight in glorifying the name of God by their mortal agony. He says, our Lord was not less brave than these in prospect of his departure, but never let it be forgotten that the death of Christ was a very peculiar one. And in fact, stands it's by itself alone. His death was the vindication of justice. It was the death of, of the sin bearer. It was a sacrificial, substitutionary, expiatory death. And this is, the very, this is very different from the death of a pardoned, justified believer who passes out of the world resting on the atonement and supported by a sense of having been reconciled to God by the great sacrifice. To say it in layman's terms, when you're laying in your hospital bed one day about to breathe the last breath that you ever take and you are resting in the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ, understand first of all that you rest in that peace and that joy and that longing for heaven because of what Christ did for you. And in second, understand that in your rest, that the transferred agony and, and fear and all the things that you should be experiencing in that moment is in the troubled soul of Jesus at this moment. 
and throughout his life or his week of the passion that he was agonizing for you as he went to the cross. He was bearing the weight for us. And so it's because of that agony that we see it as glory. Glory of the Father, glory of the Son. This is the beautiful and glorious doctrine of imputation. If you're not into big theological words, then understand this, that Christ became sin for you. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, and we say this quite often, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That Jesus Christ bore the weight of sin. He became a curse for us, as Galatians 3.13 says. And so the, the beautiful doctrine of imputation is that we receive the beautiful, perfect righteousness of Christ so that in him we might become the righteousness, but yet Christ takes upon himself our sin. He becomes our sin. He bears the weight of our sin. He pays the debt of our sin. It is a salvific exchange of Jesus and his people in the glorifying truth of the cross. And get this, we in our culture as human beings, we all want to relate to each other, right? We all want to have something in common. We find comfort in knowing that people have been this, through the same things that we've been through. We form communities and Facebook groups around things that we share in common. Whether it's sports teams or tragic events or cultural heritage, we find unity among people that we have in common. But Jesus takes this to another level. We don't just have the, we don't share in common with just the humanity of Christ. We find great comfort in his humanity. We, we find great commonality in the fact that Jesus lived this fully human life and, and we can relate to that and, and that, that, that he was tempted as we were and yet without sin, except it wasn't just the fact that Jesus was fully human, but he was a full sacrifice as a human for us. Meaning that in his perfect humanity, he was not only to, able to live a perfect life, he was able to bear the weight of our sin for eternity. No longer will we have to, to uh, uh, pay for our sin. That he was the perfect sacrifice. And so for that, we have been unified in him because of what he's done. And so therefore, the troubled soul of Christ with this, as we learned last week, this, this life-giving fruit that comes from his death, it allows us and encourages us to be the very seeds of Jesus Christ. I mean, to say it simply this morning, to the, the, the fact that Jesus Christ was willing to go and die for us and to be faithful to the end should lead us as, in, as believers in the church this morning to not give up or fall into despair. 
that the Lord has not only provided a way of escape of the evil of sin and Satan, but he has demonstrated for you that perseverance is key. Whatever agony of despair that you're enduring, look to Christ who endured to the end for us. Your fight is not in vain. This is why in the book of Revelation, John calls the one who endures to the end the conqueror. And note what the conqueror accomplishes. To the one who conquers, the Revelation tells us, you will be granted to eat of the tree of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. You will be given manna and a stone, and upon that stone is written a new name. You will be, give author- be given authority over the nations. You will be clothed in white and will never have your name blotted out of the book of life. And you will enjoy Christ for all eternity. That is the person who is the conqueror. And how is it that we are conquerors? Well, we are conquerors in him who has conquered and overcome the world, right? That's why Paul says at the end of his life, what? I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Hence, therefore, is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. So the connection is, is that the agitation of the Lord Jesus Christ is an agitation on your behalf so that you can be faithful seeds of the gospel and of the good news of Jesus Christ which has saved you so that you should live and persevere through the agony and the sufferings of this world which by the way does not compare to the agony of Jesus and yet it encourages us to press on until the end to be conquerors through the most difficult stages of our life because in those experiences God is molding and shaping us for his glory. That was a long sentence. We sang this morning, So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful as saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. So the glory of the agitation. Secondly, the glory of the word of God. As Jesus declares these words of truth in this agitative state, submitting himself, Father, glorify your name. What happens? Well, the father responds verbally, audibly, so people could hear. And he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The past tense, I have glorified it. I have glorified my name in the life of you, my son. That's what he means. In the miracles that you performed, in the incarnation that, that brought you into this world, and the miracles you performed, and the truth that you spoke, 
and the perseverance and obedience that you demonstrated. All those things have brought my name glory, Jesus. And now I will, he says, glorify it again in the cross. And notice that Jesus says that it is not the audible voice that is for his sake. Even in this trouble, even in this agitation, Jesus is still resolute. He's still firm in his decision. And he even says to the crowd, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Like, I I don't need a pep talk from heaven. I'm resolute. Yes, I'm struggling in my humanity, but he finishes off the struggle. As we talked about two weeks ago with Mr. Adam's sermon, this kind of lament he finishes, his, his, finishes off his lament with the strong truth of, of his resolve for what God has called him to do and his obedience. So the voice is not for him. The voice is for us. The voice is for the crowd. Three times the Father speaks audibly from heaven. And what does he do it? He does it publicly for the people that are with him. He does it when... He speaks audibly when Jesus is baptized. He speaks audibly when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And now we see it again. And why is he speaking audibly? To affirm the ministry of Jesus. I mean, what greater example and evidence can we see and hear than the booming voice of God, the Father, for the sake of the people so that we may know that he has truly sent his son and believe in his name. And yet, what do the crowds do? Some of them say, oh, did you hear that thunder? We probably need to get out of there. It's going to rain pretty soon. They attribute it to just a, a natural phenomenon. Others, particularly most likely the Jews who... Um, put a lot of emphasis on angels and they saw the influence of angels in the Jewish history and culture merely said one angel has spoken to him and although attributing it to a supernatural event it was still not a convincing supernatural event for them because you can kind of you can kind of hear the implied rejection of this great miracle that has happened. It's like they're trying to explain away the very word of God and what it says, which is what our culture does, right? Explaining it away, explaining the miracles and explaining the true work of the church, relegating preachers and and church ministry to to maybe charlatans or or just a, a good social construct. Instead of seeing the glory of God and his majesty. And of course we know with a closed revelation we understand and see why they, why they couldn't truly hear. They couldn't hear because God didn't give them the ears to hear. And they didn't understand because God said that they wouldn't understand. And why? Well because they had rejected him. Because they had rejected the Messiah. This, and, and even under, not understanding, this was a judgment upon themselves. Because they had rejected the Messiah. But nonetheless, we, 
have to be challenged and encouraged in seeing this voice from heaven and being reminded of the glory of the word of God. That in this affirmation of Jesus, the disciples who did believe that were standing around, because as Jesus says, the voice came not for your sake, or not for my sake, but yours, those would be the disciples as well. That they were affirmed in what they believed. That the word of God affirmed them. It gave them confidence. It gave them comfort. Although we truly know that in the, it, was, it won't be until the morning of the resurrection that they are truly confident, that they are truly understanding but for us, it's the glory of the word of God that does those very things. That we don't go around trying to listen for the audible voice of God, but we listen for the word of God to move and work through the revealed word of God. Through the pages of the scriptures of God, according to his Holy Spirit, which guides and directs us. Because let's be honest, as I said earlier, if we are listening for the voice of God, our filters of listening for the voice of God are broken. They are tainted by our emotions and the world. And so if we don't stand firm upon the guidance of God through his word, and we venture off to hear a voice from God in other means and ways, how are we sure that that's a true word of God and not really bad Taco Bell? How are we sure that that's the word of God and not presuppositions infiltrated into our mind by people that we love and care for? See, we have to go to the word of God because the word of God is eternal. It does not change. And so we must find God's direction and guidance from this and this alone so that we know it's what is intended. And it gives us confidence as it gave the disciples. And it gives us comfort as it gives the disciples that day. It reminded me of the scene in in Acts chapter 18 when again the apostle Paul was ministering in Corinth. He was facing difficult ministry with the Jews there. He was discouraged because of their unbelief as we all do in ministry. And the Lord spoke to him through a dream. And he said to Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I will have in in this city many who are my people. I mean, what an encouraging reminder for, for Paul in the special early ministry of the church where the Lord through a dream spoke to him and encouraged him and reminded him to press on, to persevere. And so we as the church have been given the closed canon, we've been given the word of God and it is what we need for life and godliness. And although we may seek comfort and hope from outside sources, we are overlooking the hidden power of God through his spirit that he gives us in his word. That speaks particularly to our personal and intimate details. 
Man, I, I pray as a believer that as you open God's word, you can re- recount multiple, multiple times throughout your Christian journey where you are reading through the scriptures and you are being challenged. And I mean, it's just, it's driving a, a knife deep into your soul of the struggles that you're having. And it's like the, the Lord is just speaking right to you. And it's the deepest, darkest things that you don't tell anybody that you love or care about. And yet there they are. Those words are, are speaking to you and comforting you or, or rebuking you. Like, how did you know that about me? And let us not step away from the fact that God wrote those words for you. That by his spirit, he, he, he writes these words for an audience hundreds and hundreds of years before, and yet he writes these words for us, to guide us and direct us. Let's not get so lost in the context of, of God's word that we, don't, we forget that the spirit of God applies it both to generation after generation through all types of cultures, so that just as they were comforted, we are comforted. And it doesn't make the word of God less personal. For the word of God is given to the church, his people, equally. And let me just warn you. If you don't belong to Christ, it's, then, then you understand how the word of God is meaningless to you. Please ask yourself this morning, is the word of God important to me? And use your honest answer as a barometer of your faith. Listen, I get it. Leviticus and Hebrews and Revelation and and some of the major and minor prophets, they, they become difficult for us to interpret and understand. Some would say, oh, well, they don't make great devotional reading. But listen, if, if you can't go to any of God's word and be blessed, if it's just meaningless to you, it's because the spirit of God doesn't live in you. You don't belong to him. You're not being, your soul's not being fed because your soul doesn't know that it's hungry because it's dead. And a dead soul, a dead person doesn't want to eat. He just wants to be dead. But if the word of God is not meaningful to you because you have not been given this God-infused desire, then this morning, understand the power of the cross and the glory of Jesus and what he has come to do to save you from your sin. And ask him in faith to save you and he will make you alive. And he will give you that desire. And lastly, there's the glory, not only of the agitation, the glory of the word of God, but lastly, the glory of the spiritual battle. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Verses 31 and 32 are definitive statements of God's glory that he accomplishes in the cross. First, he speaks of this great spiritual battle with the ruler of this world. 
that the ruler of this world will be cast out. That he's pronouncing a future victory over Satan that, has, that, is, that is a part of a battle that's been raging since the very beginning of history. And Jesus is like a batter in the batter box pointing to left field right before he knocks a home run. He's declaring his victory in that, in that battle over Satan when he goes to the cross. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He doesn't say, in a couple days he's going to be cast out. He's declaring it now. He's doing it with confidence. Because Satan's life has always been in jeopardy, right? His defeat has always been imminent. Matter of fact, in a wonderful book by John Stott called The Cross of Christ, he spells out six stages of this battle. First in the garden, as I said, as Jesus is pronounced as the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. Stott calls that the conquest predicted and then secondly, the incarnation in the life of Christ as we see Jesus living this life free of sin, turning away from every temptation, most importantly the temptation in the wilderness, so that the temptation in the wilderness is the is the foreshadowing of the cross because Jesus is overcoming Satan and his temptation, thus defeating him in a foreshadowing way as he will finally defeat him upon the cross. But it doesn't just happen at the temptation. It happens after every attack, after every rebuke of the Pharisees, after every demon possession, Jesus is continually showing his power day and day and day and day over Satan. But then third, the conquest achieved is the cross. As the Bible says, he is disarming the ruler and the authorities. He is triumphing over them. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. He calls that the conquest achieved. Number four, the conquest announced. The resurrection. Jesus rises from the grave. Jesus is showing his power, demonstrated his life. He's showing that death could not hold him. Oh, death, where is your sting? Number five, the conquest extended, which is the church. For from the day of the resurrection, as the apostles went out with the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church goes forward, and every day that the church lives and does the work of Christ for his glory, they are demonstrating a power over Satan. The salvation of every sinner is the shrinking grip of Satan in this world. Every encouraging word that you speak to your brother and sister in Christ is an attack against Satan and his power 
of deceit and untruthfulness and dishonesty and hate that he tries to brew in this world. Every time you encourage someone, every time the church acts upon church discipline, we are doing so to counteract the disunity that Satan wants us to have. The sin that he wants to live in your hearts and lives as members of, his, of the church of Christ. Every time, it's a reflection of the victory that Christ won. The church, or the conquest extended is the church. And finally, Stott says, the conquest consummated is the return of Christ. Revelation 19 and 20, Satan is destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire for him to suffer for all eternity with his demons and all those who rebel against Christ.